Another edition of Jamal About Sports coming to you on a Monday, March 9th, 2020. Kicking off the show, little Peter Gabriel and Sledgehammer off the smash hit album So, which I believe was from, if not 1986, it was 1987. As always, I'm your host, Jamal Hayden. Thank you for joining us today. It has been a while. Uh, Real life and work uh, have uh, kept me away from uh, doing what I love, which is this podcast, but uh, all good things, so that's a good thing as well. Um, but we got a big show to get to. We've got uh, some minor league, sorry, not minor league, preseason spring training baseball. We'll talk a little Mets, little Yankees. Uh, we'll talk a little NBA, major goings on from uh, as far as on the local front, coaching considerations. Kenny Atkins for the Nets out in a surprising move. We'll dig into uh, some of the reasons, possible reasons behind why he got fired uh, this late into the year after, you know, basically leading a team that was not expected to do much last year into the playoffs and a team that I guess was expected to do a lot because they got Kyrie Irvin and Kevin Durant, even though Kevin Durant hadn't played a second of basketball and everybody knew that, but I guess somehow just the mere presence of Kevin Durant was going to help uh, the, the the locker room there somehow. And Kyrie Irving, of course, as we all know, is a team cancer. Uh, he's only played 20 games this year, probably to the Nets' benefit anyway. Um, but we'll get into that a little bit. And then also, uh, you know, talk a little bit about the Knicks, this whole Spike Lee situation, which, of course, is just more clownish ridiculousness that comes out of MSG. Um, then we'll also look at the team and, and if there's any cause for optimism moving forward. Um, there and also uh, an interesting golf uh, note as well um, comes via the European tour, uh, not a tour that a lot of people watch or pay that close attention to. Only golf nuts like myself actually watch this stuff. Um, and as Paul Azinger, former PGA Tour player and a pretty good one, uh, now the current lead analyst for NBC, replacing Johnny Miller and Paul Azinger. <laughs> I thought I didn't like Johnny Miller as a as an analyst or a lead uh, announcer. Boy, this is Paul Eisinger is tough to take, but uh, he got some heat last week, and uh, we'll talk about that as well. Actually, kind of on his side on this. But we begin with Major League Baseball. And we begin with the Mets, and in in a shocking turn here. Um, and I'm sure, look, there's plenty of time left. And as we all know, the baseball season is exceedingly long. Uh, it's really like eight months now, right? Because, um, you know, I, I remember it felt like spring training didn't probably start till around now. We've already played, what, two weeks of games. Pitchers and catchers are reporting in February now. The season starts in late March. It used to start around April 7th. Then it was like April 1st. Now it's late March. 
So you've got you know March, April, May, June, July, August, September, and then if your team makes it to the postseason, October, it's eight months. I mean, it's 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 absurd. And then you can even throw February in there. I mean, it's it's almost like football in the sense that it's 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 kind of a year-round thing. Although baseball, I will say, it seems like when guys are off, they're they're off. I mean, some of these guys, you know, have hitting cages set up in their homes, or they work out in the offseason. You know, Noah Syndergaard went out to L.A. and, and worked out uh, in the winter uh, to try to, as is now very uh, chic way to say it, to hone his craft. Um, and by the way, I'm predicting a monster back bounce, uh, uh, bounce back year from the one they call four. Um, but this has been so far about as calm and unmet like a spring training as, as I can remember in a long time. I mean, and again, I'm sure I'm going to jinx it by saying this, but but so far, so good on the injury front. The guys that you are hoping look good, and, and again, you, you cannot derive a lot from spring training, particularly when it comes to established players and particularly when it comes to established pitchers, right? You know, although it is much different now than it used to be as well, where guys, you know, never threw a maximum effort. They worked on their secondary pitches mostly. They didn't give a rat's ass if they got lit up. Um, and now, you know, Jacob deGrom, his first start, Syndergaard's first start, they're throwing 97 on the black. I mean, it's ridiculous. But even having said that, I mean, you know, if DeGrom gets, you know, has a horrible spring, I, I'm not going to be overly concerned. Uh, I'm not going to be concerned at all. Same thing goes for Syndergaard. I know he didn't have a good year last year. Uh, we documented some of the reasons why. Clearly, his inability to control the running game was one of them, although the Mets coaching staff didn't do, do him any favors with that. And then also, you know, the fact that the defense behind him last year was horrible. Um that didn't show up, you know, a, a lot of, I, I would say with a, with a good defense behind him, he probably, his, his ERA was certainly would have been under four. But to be fair, he did not have a great year. I mean, he was not the dominant Thor that we come to expect. Um, but I think he's going to have a monster bounce back here this year. Um, but so pretty good, you know, pretty good on the injury front. They got a couple of little minor scares here. J.D. Davis hurt his shoulder diving for a ball. He seems to be fine. Uh, Seth Lugo broke his pinky toast, you know, walking into a, an ottoman in his hotel room, which is which is a very Met-like thing. And then, of course, if it was really Met-like, the issue, the initial diagnosis would have been a broken pinky toe, and then you know it would have been like gangrene, and they would have had to amputate his foot or something like that. <laughs> but apparently, he's going to be just fine as well. Uh, and um, you know. The, 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 this team that finished with the second best record in baseball after the All-Star break last year, a team that seems extremely close-knit, uh, a tight group, guys like McNeil and Alonzo and Dom Smith and J.D. Davis and, and Nimmo, those guys are all high-energy, happy-go-lucky guys that all seem to get along really well with each other. Uh, they all seem to actually, and listen, you guys know I don't like Cano, but they seem to really respect Cano and what he's done and his baseball knowledge, um, which can be a little tricky because, look, uh, I understand he looked better the second half of last year, but, um, you know, if they're going to try to cram him into the three-hole and he's going to start the season out, you know, 10 for 40 and ground into rally-killing double plays, you know, every two seconds, and his his range at second base is clearly diminished, 
Uh, and, you know, we know he doesn't do running out, you know, ground balls hard from home to first. Uh, it's going to get a little dicey. I mean, that, that, that's, you know, other than injuries, that's the one sort of uh, perilous development I can see for the Mets, which is, you know, a diminishing Cano and whether or not Louis Rojas, the new manager, who's all of 38 years old and has never managed in the major leagues before, whether or not Brody Van Wagenen will empower him to actually manage the way he sees fit. And Cano supposedly loves him. And so you would hope that, you know, look, they're never going to bench Cano, okay? He's the general manager's guy, and he's a big name, even though he's 37, and his best days are clearly behind him. But is it going to get to a point where they at least drop him down in the order? Because he should not be hitting third. We'll get to my prospective Mets lineup in a second. Well, you know, we'll do it right now. The Mets were smart and actually just put this... You know, if, if, if Rojas is going to actually care about results and not, you know, assuaging people's feelings and delicate sensibilities, this is the lineup that should be out there, you know, particularly against right-handed pitching. Nimmo leading off. He's got the best on-base percentage of anybody on the team. He sees the most pitches. It, it, it's a no-brainer. It's not even debatable. Nimmo leads off. You could bat Rosario second if you wanted or McNeil. Rosario is enticing because of the speed and the doubles and the triples. You know, you could get a, you could have a one nothing lead before you even look. You know, Nimmo leads off with a walk. Rosario hits a double in the gap, and the next thing you know, you're up one nothing, and you got a runner in scoring position. Um, the on base percentage is still not great. It got better last year. Went to three twenty. Uh, we talked, you know, late in the year last year about the massive improvements Rosario made both in the field and at the bat. And at the plate. Um, but I would say for now, I'd probably bat McNeil second. Just because he's got the best back control of anybody on the team. I love the idea of Nimmo being on first base. That whole hole opening up between first and second. Having to hold the runner on. You know, he he is the, the uh, epitome of the guy who hits somewhere they ain't. Um, so, I, I, if they're going to do that, and that's what it looks like so far, I, I, I don't hate it. I don't hate it. Now, they're going to, look, I'm just going to have to get used to it. They're going to bat Cano third. They're going to do it to start the year. I just have to deal with it and, and hope for the best. I mean, look, if Cano gave you 275, 280, you know, plays 125 games, let's say, because he's going to get rested rest days anyway. There's going to be, you know, um, and, and he's likely going to get hurt. I mean, I'm not wishing this upon him, but the likelihood is that he's going to get hurt. I mean, your legs don't get better over time the older you get. They get worse. And he had a lot of leg issues last year, quad issues, hamstring issues. It typically doesn't go away. Um, so, you know, I would bat probably... See, I guess I, I, I would. I would do... Nimmo first, Rosario second, McNeil third. Because I, I know I, I'm a dinosaur. I still think your best hitter should hit third, and McNeil's the Mets' best hitter. I would hit McNeil third. I'd hit Alonzo fourth. He's a classic cleanup hitter. I'd bat uh, Conforto fifth, Ramos sixth, Cano seventh, and uh, who am I leaving out? 
Am I leaving somebody out here? Who am I leaving out? Nimmo Conforto. Oh, I guess whoever plays left field. So it's probably, I mean, I, yeah, you're going to bet J.D. Davis eighth? Probably not. I mean, I guess you could. I mean, the, the point is the Mets lineup is deep. Should be deep. Now, was J.D. Davis for real last year? Was he not? I think he was. Um, and obviously this is not even to say anything of if Cespedes actually comes back and plays. Uh, I think if you're the Mets, if he gives you 100 games, you're thrilled. Um, and, you know, you hope that he obviously is productive. And it'd be like getting, you know, sort of an early trade deadline acquisition if he comes back, say, in May, right? But there's no need to rush him back right now. Uh, Mets lineup is good. Starting pitching should be excellent. I mean, look, DeGrom I don't worry about. Syndergaard I don't worry about. Stroman, I think, will have a very good year. Now, he's not, you know, he doesn't have the ceiling that Zach Wheeler has, but Stroman's been a very good pitcher in the, in the American League East, which is one of the hardest divisions in all of baseball to pitch in for a long time. And obviously, you know, the American League is harder to pitch in than the National League, obviously because of you know, DH, number one, and, and, you know, some of the ballparks, particularly in that AL East, number two, Yankee Stadium and, and Camden Yards, chief among them, and, and Fenway. All, all three of those are hitters' havens. So, and Toronto can be a very good place to hit also, which is where he pitched most of his career. So, um, and Strowman's look great in the spring. Again, you don't go crazy over it, but it's just it's encouraging to see. Uh, Max has looked great in the spring, and he's supposedly locked in a battle with him and Michael Waka, who they took, you know, who they signed in the offseason, sort of a low-risk, low high-reward guy. Guy's been a successful starter for the Cardinals, has started in some postseason games. Guy's always hurt. You know, I think he's only thrown 150 innings or more twice out of like six years in the big leagues. And then they signed Rick Porcello, you know, four years ago was the Cy Young in the AL, former Red Sox, who, you know, had a bad year last year, still went 14-12 and 12 and pitched 200 innings. And granted, he had a 5 ERA. Um, you know, again, I think, he, you know, he'll be better having being, you know, that ERA will go down a half a run just from going for the American League and the National League. Um, and, you know, he's, he's this good, solid innings eater. I mean, look, if Rick Porcello is your fifth starter, you got a good pitching staff. I mean, he's certainly an upgrade over Jason Vargas, who was in Mets' fifth starter last year, and he can certainly give you go deeper in games. And, I mean, Porcello on a good game, on a good day, which he still is capable of having, can go seven innings and two runs. So, I mean, and listen, he'll also have games where he gives up six runs in six innings. I mean, that's going to happen. That's what fifth starters do. But he can give you that length. And then, you know, look, the bullpen is, 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 the, is the big wild card. You know, is Diaz going to bounce back? He, you wouldn't think he could be any worse than last year. And again, the thing about Diaz is, remember, he averaged, he had 99 strikeouts in like 50-something innings last year. I mean, he averaged almost 16 strikeouts per nine innings. The stuff is there. It's just every mistake he made got hit for a home run. He gave up 15 home runs, which is insane for a relief pitcher, particularly a closer, because ostensibly they're only facing three batters. Um, you know, his slider, for whatever reason, did not have the bite that it did the year before. Now, again, you don't expect him to, to have the, you know, crazy good year, almost historic year that he had two years ago with Seattle, but you certainly expect him to be better than last year. Familia has lost 30 pounds. He looks like a different guy this year. He should, be, by at, at worst, be a competent setup guy. You still have Lugo. 
who you know I, I don't think is quite as good as everybody else does, but he's still pretty good. And if he doesn't get overused, he can be really good. Justin Wilson is still effective. Brad Brack has looked good this spring, who I don't understand why Cali didn't use him more late in the year last year. You know, he's another one of these guys. Had some great years, then he was awful for the Cubs. And then, you know, we say it all the time. I mean, the fickle nature of relief pitchers is well known, right? Guy could be good one year and terrible the next. We, just, we saw it with Diaz last year. It's a perfect example. You know, other than a few guys like Mariano Rivera, who are consistently great for 15 years, there's not a lot of guys like that out there. You know, I mean, even Kenley Jansen. I mean, he's been one of the top closers in baseball for the Dodgers. And he, had, he went through stretches last year. He was terrible. I mean, it happens. So you never know with relief pitchers. But I think the Mets have enough depth there to cobble together. I mean, look, Allen, they signed Dylan Betances, former Yankee, who when he's at the height of his powers is as good as there, there is in baseball. So, I mean, you know, let's just say for argument's sake, you get a decent year from Betances, a decent year from Familia, a decent year from Diaz, a good, you know, a decent year from Lugo. I mean, that right there is enough. And then if Justin Wilson is good, you know, maybe Brad Brack isn't any good. I mean, you repl- I mean th- th- there's enough there that the bullpen should be, if not, you know, it potentially could be one of the best in baseball. But at worst, it should be top, top eight, top ten. So I am cautiously optimistic. And, and we said it last year. I mean, look, it, it's a fun team because of the guys that I mentioned earlier. Right, the core guys like Alonzo and McNeil and Nimmo and Rosario. I mean, those guys are all extremely easy to root for. They bring an energy and a, and a and a joy that has been lacking with this organization for many many years. So, I'm looking forward to it. You know, they got a couple of little you know things to iron out. I mean, I'm not going to be happy if Tomas Nito is the backup catcher. It should be Rene Rivera. You know, we'll see what they do with the bench. Eduardo Nunez is in camp. Is he going to make it over Luis Guillorme? You know, Guillorme is the better fielder of the two. He's really the only true backup shortstop for Rosario. But you got to think Rosario is, isn't coming out for defense late in games. And, you know, maybe you, you want to put... Guillaume in there for Cano late in game. See, this is, again, this is my big problem with Cano. He just gums up the works. He just does. He shouldn't be play, play, He shouldn't even be on the team. McNeil should be playing second base. You know, they're going to shoehorn him into the three-hole, and they're going to, you know, he's going to lose them games early because he's not, you know, he's going to he's gonna be grounding into double plays. I, I just, <laughs> it is what it is. But, Look, they overcame it last year. Again, he's going to probably miss a bunch of time with injuries. Um, they'll probably DH him when they go to play in some American League parks. You know, it, it'll be interesting. It looks like a deep team. Rojas is going to have some hard decisions to make. Um, but what I love is apparently he gathered the team together and said, look, we want to play Mets baseball. Mets baseball means fundamentals. It means running the bases hard. It means being aggressive means running the bases smart, making the right plays in the field. I mean, I haven't heard a Matt's manager mention any of these things, and I, I can't remember. I think maybe Willie Randolph was the last one in 05 when Willie came here. 
you know, and he tried to institute some Yankee-like professionalism, which, you know, the players accepted for about a half a minute, and then they had a little success, and then, of course, they had to go behind his back and start griping Omar Minaya, who allowed that whole mess to happen, which people conveniently forget. They like to look back on Minaya as this great GM because he did unearth some good talent, but he did not run a tight ship, and he completely undermined Willie Randolph at every turn. But anyway... You know, and, and I'm not saying he even necessarily did it on purpose. I don't think it was malicious. I just think, you know, Omar, Omar's a nice guy, and he's a player's guy. But, you know, you have to have that chain of command. You can't let the players go behind the manager's back and complain to the general manager when they're unhappy that the manager's being too hard on them. It's ridiculous, which apparently happened. But anyway, that's a long time ago. What I'm saying is Rojas has, you know, basically thrown down the gauntlet and said, look, this is the way we want to play. And you see it in spring training. I mean, you see guys are much more aggressive on the bases. Uh, you see guys, you know, busting it from, from home to first, or at least the young guys are, on ground balls. Um, and look, this is Felipe Alou's son. This guy's grown up in baseball his whole life. He managed for at various levels within the Mets minor leagues for seven years, so he's paid his dues. Guys like Alonzo and McNeil played for him. They love the guy. Conforto played for him. He loves the, they love, he loves the guy. He seems extremely well-respected, and the veterans seem to respect him too because they particularly, and look, uh, the Latin players really like him. Guys like Cano and Wilson Ramos. And they know who Felipe Alou is, and they respect the hell out of him, and they respect the fact that Rojas is his son and grew up in a major league clubhouse and a dugout his whole life. This guy's managed in winter ball. I mean, this guy's, from a pay-their-dues perspective, reminds me a little bit of Davey Johnson, right? Davey Johnson managed in minor leagues for a long time. And was great at it. Obviously, he had a lot of really good players along the way because those guys all came up and ended up being stars in the Mets, like Strawberry and Gooden and Darling. But my point is, the guys paid his dues. So this Astros cheating scandal that basically, you know, Carlos Beltran was a casualty of, uh, looks like it's going to actually really help the Mets out because I didn't like Beltran as a manager to begin with anyway. And in a weird sort of Seinfeldian, George becomes Elaine, Elaine becomes George, the other team in town, the Yankees, boy, they cannot get out of their own way when it comes to these injuries. Severino, out for the year. Uh, Domingo Herman, not an injury, but domestic violence, suspended for half the year. Paxton hurt with a back injury. Now Aaron Judge apparently broke a rib last September. They didn't know it was a broken rib until last week. He'd had this weird pain in his side and couldn't figure out what it was, and it was frustrating the hell out of him. And they finally figured out, you know, six months later that it was a broken rib. I mean, that's very Mets-like. Stanton hurt again for a change, of course. Uh, So, look, I understand the Yankees got Garrett Cole, and he's a stud. And they still have Tanaka. Uh, But the rest of that starting rotation right now did not look great. Um, Yes, the bullpen should be good. And, but you know, look, they, they're going to need Aaron Judge. I understand they got Andujar coming back, and Torres was a, a, had a very good year last year, and LeMahieu had a very good year last year. You know, Gardner, you know, solid player, but not getting any younger. Uh, Gary Sanchez, you know, AG basically told me the other day he thinks he's done. I mean, he, he had a miserable year last year. Um, who knows? But they're going to need the Yankees. Going to need him to bounce back. You know, Hicks is great when he plays, but he's always hurt. Uh, they're going to need Aaron Judge. Look, they never should have traded for Giancarlo Stanton. They never needed Giancarlo Stanton. He's another guy just gums up the works. 
He's a guy that does not hit good pitching. Um, you know, he feasts on mistakes. You do not want him up in a big spot in the playoffs against a good pitcher. But Judge is, you know, they need him. So, you know, at least now they've diagnosed what the issue is, but they may have to do this surgery where they have to remove a rib. I mean, if they do that, I mean, he's going to be out. You got to think probably certainly for the month of April. And, you know, when it gets to, you know, for hitters, when you have an injury to, you know, your core, it's not great because it's a lot of time without swinging. So even if he comes back in May, you got to, you probably need to, you know, allow for some for some time for him to knock the rust off. Now, again, the season's so long, the Yankees should be able to, to, to tread water, I would think, until he comes back. And again, there's enough bad teams in the American League um, that, you know, they should beat up on, you know, the Royals of the world and the Orioles and... Uh, well, the White Sox actually look like they might be trying to compete a little bit this year. We'll see. Um, but the Tigers are going to be really bad again. You know, Red Sox are not going to be as bad as everybody thinks. I mean, I know they traded Mookie Betts. Um, you know, they, the Verdugo kid they got back for him should be a stud. They still have Benintendi. They still have uh, J.D. Martinez. They still have... Um, Who's the third baseman? Why can't I remember the third baseman's name now? The third baseman. Um, they still have Jackie Barley Jr. playing center field. I know he's not the best hitter in the world, but he's a great fielder. Um, you know, now look, the sale stuff, he it looks like he's gonna be out for a while again. Who knows if he's ever gonna be the same. You know, I understand the Red Sox have issues, but they they're not gonna be a doormat by any stretch. So it'll be interesting. All right, we'll take a short break. We'll be back with some NBA right after this. All right, we're back here on another edition of Jamal About Sports, Monday, March 9th. I believe this is episode 127. Uh, So NBA. So the Nets, weirdly, surprisingly, shockingly, on Saturday, fired Kenny Atkinson, their head coach, after... One of their better wins of the season, a complete and utter wire-to-wire blowout domination of the Spurs. Now, look, this, these are not, you know, the Spurs that we are used to of recent vintage. Um, we've said that, but they're still, it's still Greg Popovich is the coach. They still have good players like LaMarcus Aldridge and DeMar DeRozan and Patty Mills uh, and a few others. Um, so, you know, while, look, I get it, they're under 500, you know. Again, we've said this before. The Spurs, they won 50 games in a row, 50 games 20 years in a row. Made the playoffs 20 years in a row. They, they, they're allowed a down year. <laughs> but, um, you know, they had the thrilling overtime win against the Celtics where they were down three and the Celtics had the ball with three seconds left and the Nets managed to come back and win that game in overtime. Then, predictably, the next night they had a stinker against Memphis, who, by the way, is not bad. And John Morant, their stud point guard, the rookie out of... Uh, Murray State, who, you know, I was desperately wanting the Knicks to be able to get the second pick so they could get him. Uh, he looks like he's the real deal. So, you know, they, they, they had a stinker the next night. Okay, it happens. Um, they were gassed from the game before, emotional win. They were probably gassed physically and mentally. It happens. These back-to-backs in the NBA are, are always, you know, they're notorious for being hard. Uh, but then they rebounded and, and, and took care of business at home against a team they're supposed to beat in the Spurs and did it in convincing fashion. Um, 
And then they fired Kenny Atkinson. And my first thought was, okay, this has to be like a conduct thing, right? He did something wrong, maybe a Me Too sort of a thing. I, I don't know. I'm like, how are you going to fire a guy? I mean, the Nets right now are the seventh seed so they're in, the, in the East for a playoff spot. So I figure, you know, I mean, what more do you want? And again, everybody knew Durant wasn't playing this year. And Kyrie Irving was supposed to play this year. He hasn't. He's played 20 games. He's been a nuisance, of course, since he's been here because he's a me, me, me guy. You know, oh, it's all about me. Oh, what do I need? What do I need to compete? What do I need? I mean, here's the thing about Kyrie Irving. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. The talent is on question, although you have to now start to wonder, are we going to get diminishing returns? Because this guy is always hurt now. I mean, he was hurt coming into the NBA, right? He played, what, seven games in college? He's missed major time with injuries the last couple of years. The Celtics couldn't wait for him to get the hell off their team. They hated playing with him. Hated it. I don't think this, this, these Nets particularly like playing with him. And the one year he won was he had LeBron. So, now granted, to be fair, he was a major, it wasn't like he was along for the ride. He made a huge shot in the finals. He was a major contributor. He was easily the second best player on that Cleveland team with LeBron. There's no question about that. But he still had LeBron, who is still the best player in the NBA. I know Giannis is amazing. And Harden's averaging 30. And I, I get it. LeBron is still LeBron. He's still the best player in the NBA. He might have had a little bit of a down year last year. He's back with a vengeance this year. And yes, I know playing with Anthony Davis helps. But my point is, he had vintage LeBron. That was what, four years ago when they won that championship? It was. It was 2016. So, Kyrie Irving's finest moment in basketball was with LeBron James at his side. Since then, what's he done? Nothing. Nothing. But this is the NBA. The NBA is about reputation and pairing guys up. So him and KD wanted to come to Brooklyn together because it's hip and cool, man. Look, I said it all year last year as a Knicks fan. And, you know, look, I'm, I'm starting. I was trying to convert to the Nets. And second they signed Kyrie Irving, that was it for me. Although now that he's not playing for them, I'll watch them. I watch them more than the Knicks because the Knicks are fairly unwatchable. And I can root for guys like Dinwiddie and Joe Harris and the Fro. DeAndre Jordan still plays hard. And Karis LeVert. And Ian Eagles is one of the best there is doing the games. Love them. You know, I like watching the Nets. I do. I enjoy them. I can root for them. But... As a Knicks fan, I said, if Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, if the Knicks sign both those guys, A, I'm going to tell you right now, it's going to be an unmitigated disaster. It will not work out here. They, they will be gone well before those contracts are up. One of the two of them will get hurt and hardly ever play. And so it just happened for the Nets instead of the Knicks. Kyrie Irving is a poison in a locker room. And it's funny, for somebody who fancies themselves some sort of an intellectual, he is really emotionally dumb. He really is. I mean, he just doesn't get that you got to make, particularly if you're a point guard, 
you got to make it about everybody else, not yourself. You can't dribble around for 17 seconds and then, you know, jump up, jack up a 17-foot jump shot or a three. And look, he'll make a lot of them because he's very talented. But it doesn't help the team. doesn't do much. you got to get everybody else involved. And then late in the game, you take over the game if it's a close game. Fine. But the first, second, and third quarter, distribute. Get everybody else involved. Get everybody else feeling good about themselves. You know, nobody likes Kelly Leak out there, you know? And now there's whispers that Kevin Durant and maybe Irving, but maybe even more Durant, were at the heart of Kenny Atkinson leaving. Because apparently they had a, a bit of a, a, an airing of grievances meeting, a la Festivus. And uh, apparently Durant doesn't like the culture that's going on right now. First of all, Kevin Durant, you haven't played a second, or you don't. And, and, and as, as far as I know, he's not. He doesn't practice with the team either. So what, what do you know from it? You're not even at half the games. And apparently there were some other veterans who, I mean, there's not a lot of veterans on this Nets team. I mean, you got guys like, I mean, DeAndre Jordan's the only other one. And, you know, we all know he's good buddies with Durant and, and Kyrie, which is why he's with the Nets, one of the reasons. He can still play. I mean, he can still block, he can still dunk and rebound. He doesn't move nearly as well as he used to defensively. He's, he, he's, he's actually probably not very good defensively anymore. But he gives you effort on the offensive glass. He keeps balls alive. He's good on the pick and roll, finishing at the rim. But I mean, and look, I don't. I'm not saying Kenny Axe is the greatest coach in the world, but he took over a, a moribund franchise. I think got them ahead of schedule, got him into the playoffs his third year there. They're going to make the playoffs this year too, barring a complete and total collapse. Now, granted, the the East in the NBA is terrible. And most of the league is terrible. We've talked about that before too. I mean, I think I think maybe now with Memphis at five hundred, uh, not maybe it's a dead even. Half the teams are under five hundred in the NBA. Take a look in a second. But uh, you know, and, and look, there were some Nets games this year. The Nets, I will say, to be fair, if you wanted to try to judge Kenny Atkinson, you know, put a negative mark on his ledger as far as his coaching ability is concerned. There were several games this year. The Nets blew big leads, but although that happens all over the NBA now with the with the ridiculous carefree three point shooting that takes place, and the fact that nobody's allowed to guard three point shooters anymore either in the NBA. I mean, do you understand that you can now get called for a flagrant foul if you run out and you close out on a three point shooter, and you you land you're there in their airspace when they land? That's a flagrant foul now. I mean, it's embarrassing what has happened to the NBA. It's embarrassing. It is the ultimate millennials league. It really is. You can't, there's no physical play allowed anymore. Everybody just pat each other on the ass as they go right past you for a layup or a dunk or a three-point shot. I mean, it's, 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 it's a joke. I mean, other than the top-tier teams like the Clippers, the Lakers, the Bucks, a couple other ones, when they play each other, and there's great players like LeBron and Giannis and Kawhi on the floor and Anthony Davis. Other than that, I mean, the NBA is almost unwatchable now. It's unwatchable. I mean, the Knicks, watching that Knicks-Pistons game last night, 
I mean, I really, you got to, I, I mean, I got to question everything. I mean, what am I doing? I mean, granted, it's a Sunday night. So, I mean, put it this way. I'm not staying in on a Friday night to watch the Knicks-Pistons. Two completely moribund franchises and teams. But getting back to the Nets and Kenny Atkinson, so there were times when they blew big leads. There were times when they'd let the other team's best score get hot late in games and take them and, and, and come back and win. Um, you know, the Nets the Nets would have some 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 possessions down the stretch in close games where you scratch your head and you're like, what was that? And so, you know, as an objective observer, if that were my team team, because the Nets still aren't really my team, they're sort of, as I said, they're my sports mistress. Um, I would say, you know, what's this guy doing? So, I mean, but that's not what this was about. This wasn't about Kenny Atkinson's, you know, perceived shortcomings as 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 a strategist, as an NBA coach. You know, all of a sudden, it's not a culture fit or whatever the hell that means. And look, ever since Magic Johnson got Paul Westhead fired for Pat Riley, I mean, this has been going on for years. I mean, Patrick Ewan got Don Nelson fired for Jeff Van Gundy. I mean, coaches, you know, uh, who was it? Jason Kidd got Byron Scott fired for for Lawrence Frank. I mean, it happens. More so than any other sport and any other league, the NBA players run that league. And it's gotten even more so with uh, Adam Skeletor Silver, the uh, the commissioner. (laughs) I mean, watching an NBA game now, I mean, every... Hard foul now has to get reviewed to see if it's a flagrant. We have to stop the pace of play and look at 19 different angles and replays. I mean, I'm telling you, it's just, it's just awful. It's awful. And the Rockets, with their small ball, they traded my guy, Clint Capella. Anybody who's ever listened to the show knows I was a big Clint Capella guy, particularly for the way the Rockets played. He's a guy that can give you 15 points and 15 rebounds. You never run a play for the guy. He scores all his points on put-back dunks and dunks on a fast break and layups. And yet, he wasn't, any good, for, he wasn't good enough for them they had to get rid of him because they were going to go small ball. And it looked like it was going to work. And then the Knicks of all teams beat them the other night. And now they're in a tailspin. They've lost four games in a row. I mean, and they're totally live by the three, die by the three team. I mean, they, 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 it is nothing for them to shoot 40 to 50 threes in a game. Nothing. Because Harden will take 20 on his own. And you know, I love my guy, Russ Westbrook, who's on that squad now. And he puts up big numbers still. And Harden picks up big numbers Puts up big numbers. And Robert Covington, who they got to kind of replace Capella, to be fair, has played well for them. But, you know, again, you can beat bad teams with that lineup. You're not going to beat a good team. You're not beating any good. You're not beating the Lakers. You're not beating the Clippers. And the Clippers aren't the tallest team in the league either. But their bigger guys are also athletic. Montrez Harrell is athletic. He's he's the, the Rockets don't have anybody who can cover him. I think the Clippers, Clippers and the Lakers, are the two best teams in the West. Everybody else is just playing catch up. I understand Utah's a nice little story. Denver's a nice little story. They don't have the horses. They don't. And the Rockets don't either. 
telling you right now, it's going to Clippers, Lakers in the NBA Finals. In the Western Conference Finals, rather. That should be a very good matchup. And in the East, I mean, Milwaukee was rolling. What were they, 40-9? and nine, And now Giannis just got hurt. Doesn't look like it's going to be major, but... We'll see. The Sixers are a Jekyll and Hyde team. Can't win on the road. And Bede's been hurt. Simmons has been hurt. I said that, I said it here last year. Both really good players, both great players, do not belong on the court together. It's not a good fit. They're just not a good fit. And to, if Simmons, Unless Simmons learns how to shoot from outside, having Simmons and Bede on the court at the same time is not a good fit. Because you don't want Embiid standing out at three points. I mean, look, yes, on, on occasion when he's wide open, do you mind him taking a three? No. But that should not be the, the, the main part of his repertoire. I understand we, we hate centers now in the NBA, and anybody with a low post move is uh, anathema. But um, how about you do what, what, what works, which is, you know, Embiid is uh, impossible to guard six feet from the basket. But that's where Ben Simmons likes to operate because he's 6'11". He's a freak. I get it. He's a point guard, 6'11". Great passer, can finish with both hands. I get all of that. I'm not saying I don't like both players. I take either one of them on the Knicks tomorrow, but not together and not a good fit. So Sixers aren't doing anything. Celtics, Celtics blew an 18-point lead at home last night to OKC. OKC's been the surprise story of, of of the season, probably. Right after they got rid of West, got rid of Westbrook and Paul George, they got Chris Paul. Everybody thought Chris Paul was done, myself included. Chris Paul has taken the challenge and has played some of the best basketball of his career. Now, if I'm the Knicks, I'm not pick, picking him up next year. Which, of course, is talk that that's going to happen because the Knicks hired his former agent to be their president of basketball operations. Because this is the, now you know that now that that idiotic notion is has crept into the NBA. I understand it's worked for the Warriors. Okay. Good for them. That's one place. And they already had a stable setup in place when that happened. They already had Steph Curry and Klay Thompson. But what was I saying now? Oh, Eastern Conference, yeah. Oh, no, no, OKC, sorry. Uh, Gallinari's on that team, he's playing well. Old Nick, Danilo Gallinari. And then the big revelation has been Shea Gilgius-Alexander, who, of course, the Knicks could have drafted two years ago out of Kentucky, but they took the wrong guy from Kentucky, Kevin Knox. And apparently Chris Paul's influence on Gilgius-Alexander has been huge because he's also a guard, even though he's a big, tall guard. And then Dennis Schroeder who was a you know 20 point scorer for the Hawks has actually embraced his six man role there and has played great. So a lot of times you'll see OKC in a three guard alignment with Schroeder, Gilgis Alexander and Chris Paul and the three really good ball handlers, three scorers, three shooters. I mean Chris Paul's not a great shooter, but he can make open threes and he makes clutch shots. And then you got uh, you know Danilo Gallinari out there also can shoot a three. I mean, they're, they're, they're a good team, but they're not beating the Clippers or the Lakers. But they're a nice story. Again, nobody expected anything from them. They're, gonna, they're almost at 40 wins. They're definitely making the playoffs. You know, in the East, the question is, what happens come playoff time, assuming Giannis is healthy? 
Is it going to be like last year where teams just you know wall him off and then dare Chris Middleton or Bledsoe or one of the Lopez twins or you know whomever else they have on that team, Wes Matthews to beat to beat him? I mean that's that's what the, that's what teams are going to do. Now Giannis has improved his three point shooting. He's still not you know he's not dead eye from there, but I think he's about thirty percent, which is not great, but it's not terrible. Um, you know, I don't see it though. I don't see a team in the East that's going to give them a run for the money. I mean, I guess it would be Boston. If Boston's fully healthy, you know, Tatum needs to play. I mean, Tatum's had a very good year, but he needs to give them, you know, he can't have any off nights in the playoffs. Jalen Brown can't have any off nights in the playoffs. And Kemba Walker, I like a lot. You know, we'll see. He's kind of been up and down for them this year. All right. Getting to the Knicks really quickly. They really are unwatchable. And I I, I, I don't understand what they're doing. I mean, your season's going nowhere. You have 20 wins. Why in the world is Reggie Bullock... Or Jim J. Bullock, as I like to call him. Why is he playing significant minutes? Why is Taj Gibson playing significant minutes? Why is Wayne Ellington playing? I mean, listen. You can't get Kevin Knox off this team fast enough for me. I, I It's gotten to the point now where I used, to, I used to just get angry watching him play. Now I just feel bad for him. It's so obvious the kid doesn't even really like basketball. His effort level is embarrassing. It's embarrassing. He's 20 years old. He barely tries. He don't like basketball all that much. And he's not very good either, by the way. He's one of these guys that played basketball because he was 6'9". It's like Eddie Curry, although Eddie Curry was supremely talented. Kevin Knox is not supremely talented. He can't shoot, can't finish, has no post game. He don't play defense. But other than that, he's pretty good. I mean, I, I, I keep reading from, you know, the Knicks beat guys. Well, he a promising rookie year. What was promising about his rookie year last year? He had a couple of decent scoring games and meaningless games against bad teams. He averaged 12 points a game with terrible shooting percentage. Who cares? And he's even worse this year. He deserves zero playing time as far as I'm concerned. But, look, Nilekina's going to be here. You may as well just play him 30 minutes a night. See if he's any good. I mean, he's not any good either, but he's still a thousand times better than Kevin Knox. That's how bad Kevin Knox is. Is that Nilekina is a thousand times better than Kevin Knox. And Nilekina, again, he's poor man's Darrell Walker, folks. He is not a starting caliber guard in the NBA. He's not. Nice kid. Works hard. I get it. Nothing against him personally. Just call me like I see it. Facts. Not a very good shooter. He's not a penetrator. He's not a gifted passer. Doesn't get set guys up for, for easy shots. He's decent defensively. He's not great, by the way. People like to say he's great. He's not great. He's decent. I mean, there's an article the other day about this is why Neil Keen is on the team because he guarded Russell Westbrook so great when the, when the uh, uh, when Houston had a chance to tie the game up late. With the last possession. No, he didn't. He didn't let him... I'll give him this. Westbrook didn't blow by him for a layup, but he still got a shot that was very makeable that you would expect a guy like Westbrook to make, 18-footer. Now, look, Nilekina kept him in front, had his hand out. I get it. But, you know, it's not like he, you know, forced him into a terrible shot that had no chance of going in. I mean, the, the ball almost... He almost made the shot. 
But this is this is the the bar is so low around the Knicks. That's that's what passes for stellar defense these days, I guess. So my point is, Nellie is a backup, and, and you hope he's a good part of a rot- of a of a good rotation on a good team. That's that's his ceiling. Never going to be a, a quality starter on a good team in this league. He's not. The only reason to watch the Knicks right now is R.J. Barrett and Mitchell Robinson. That's it. And Barrett has nights like he did against Houston last week where he went for off and had 27, where he looks really good. And then he has other nights where he looks terrible. Typical rookie stuff. You know, you, you would think, look, he definitely seems to have the right head, the right temperament, good kid, tries hard, works hard, loves basketball. His father played at St. John's, loves being in New York. You suspect he will work like crazy on his jump shot in the offseason, come back a better shooter, work on his foul shooting. I mean, you can't be shooting 60% or 58% or whatever it is he shoots from the line. It's unacceptable. Can't have it as a guard. Can't have it. But I don't think he's going to ever be a superstar superstar, but he should be an above-average player on a good team. Mitchell Robinson... Again, think DeAndre Jordan most more recently, a little less recently, Marcus Camby. Same guy. Much more the body type of Camby, actually, and wears the same number. Looks very similar to him. Kind of 6'11 string bean who, you know, uncanny knack for blocking shots both inside and, 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 and jump shots without fouling. Great finisher at the rim. Great offensive rebounder. You know, needs to develop. You would like to see him develop at least a spot-up 15-foot jump shot. Ah, the lovely sounds of downtown Brooklyn. Uh, but anyway, you'd love to see Mitch, you know, have some semblance of, a, of, of an offensive, you know, at least, again, learn how to just shoot a 15-footer, although I, I know in today's NBA, it's three. Fine. Take a thousand threes a, a day in the offseason for two months. And if, if at least he's a threat out, he could become a bit of a threat. That's it, though. That's the only reason. And look, Alfred Payton's a nice player. You know, he had a, he's had a triple-double recently. He's had like four, three or four good games in a row. He's a good passer. He can penetrate. Another, though, another one, though, can't shoot. Can't shoot for a terrible foul shooter and, and can't make a three to save his life. I mean, I'm not of the opinion where you got to jack up 93s a game like everybody else, but you can't have a point guard who can't shoot from outside at all. I mean, he, and he can't. Elver Payton is a very, is a solid backup on a good team. He's not a starting point guard on a good team. He's not. I mean, maybe if, if the other four guys were all gifted scorers, you could live with a guy like that because he does play pretty good defense. He's got good size at 6'4", rebounds. As I said, he's a good passer. But And so he's at least watchable. But, I mean, it's been a completely lost season for Dennis Smith. He's hurt again with the concussion. So you can't even just run him out there and just let him make mistake after mistake and hope he figures it out. So his future is very much in doubt. I mean, in this Knicks point guard situation has just been a, a revolving door for seemingly forever. And it's insane. And that's it. I mean, there's, there's really no other reason to watch. I mean, Julius Randle, you know how guys have like, you know, Larry Bird had sort of that patented like step back off the, you know, off, uh, off, off maybe off the wrong foot jump shot. And Kareem had the sky hook and, 
You know, guys have patented moves. Julius Randle's patented move is to uh, spin dribble into a double team and turn the ball over. That's that's his patented move. And I understand he puts up points. He is the classic example of a best player on a bad team guy. Gives you window dressing, meaningless statistics, none of which amount to winning. None. None. Guy plays no defense. He's a below-the-rim player in an above-the-rim league. Not a good three-point shooter. He's a throwback to a time that is long gone from the NBA. And look, good. Seems like a nice enough guy. Seems to care, but he's just not very good. Again, he's probably best suited as maybe being a sixth man on a good team. So, I mean, there's just, there's just nothing going on there. Nothing. And now Leon Rose, the former super agent, is going to be the head of basketball operations. I'm sure that will go well. We'll see if they keep this Mike Miller as the head coach. I mean, I doubt it. Particularly, you know what? Kenny Atkinson probably, look, he was an assistant with the Knicks from, what, 08 to 12? And he certainly, look, I mean, guys like Spencer Dinwiddie and Joe Harris, who the Nets got off the scrap heap, developed into above-average NBA players. Well, Dinwiddie certainly is. Joe Harris is a nice, solid player. So he might be just what the doctor ordered. But Van Gundy might be in play. Tom Thibodeau might be in play. Although I think Tom Thibodeau's best days are behind him, and and he'll go he'll go he'll. I don't think you can. Unfortunately, I don't think a guy like Thibodeau can can exist in today's NBA. You know, he's a hard driving coach. He's a yeller. He's on guys all the time. Guys don't want that anymore. Players don't want that. I'm sorry. A really young team, they're not going to go for it. I mean, unless you win, but you're not going to win. The Knicks don't have enough talent to win. So I think it'd be a disaster. I think Kenny Atkinson actually would be a great choice being next head, next head coach. All right, lastly, uh, great uh, playoff yesterday in golf. I, I turned to golf on yesterday morning, and they're playing, where were they playing, in Dubai? No, in Doha, in, in Qatar. Uh, and fifth, it went to five playoff holes. It really ended up being six because the 18th hole came down to this guy, Jorge Campillo, uh, who's a Spanish player, and David Drysdale, who's from Scotland, who's 44 years old, and he's looking for his first ever win on the European Tour. Now, this is a guy who's been a, obviously a grinder, been playing other tours, lesser tours, right? He wins this. This is probably a, you know maybe life-changing money or close to it. You know, you get status. You probably get to you know play other key events on the European Tour. I mean, it's a big deal winning a tournament, whether it's the PGA Tour or the European Tour. And these guys went back to eight. So they they both, I think they both birdied eighteen to force a playoff. Then they played five playoff holes, all the eighteenth hole. This guy Drysdale literally hit his drive. Four of the five drives, he hit it almost in the exact same spot. And then hit great approach shots in for, it was a par four, second shot. Uh, Campillo hit a couple shots that were okay. Made two long birdie putts. Looked like Drysdale was going to definitely win twice because he had fairly short makeable birdie putts. He made them, but Campillo drained long birdie putts. And then the same thing happened on finally in the fifth playoff hole. Campillo made like a 20-footer for birdie. 
And Drysdale had like a 15-footer, and he finally missed it. I felt bad for him. I mean, look, it's a gr- still a great finish, probably decent money for him. But I just I found it so interesting and so easy to root for a guy 44 years old trying to win his first ever tournament on the European Tour. And look, as somebody who plays a ton of golf and plays competitive golf, I don't care if you're playing in a member guest. I don't care if you're playing in your club championship. Winning a golf tournament is hard, man. It is hard. And this guy, I mean, look, he didn't lose it. Tip your cap to Jorge Campillo. This guy played great. He made three extremely high-pressure putts, and he won the tournament. But, man, I felt bad for that guy, that Drysdale guy from Scotland. All right, that'll do it for this week's show. As always, thanks for listening. Check us out wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, peace out.